All right, Colin, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Harry. I'm excited to chat with Samir today, and uh, I've already come up with a nickname for him. I don't know if he's trademarked it yet, but I'm thinking the network effects guy. So that's sort of a tease of what this episode is going to be about. So uh, excited to have you, Samir, and uh, talking a little bit about your bio. Samir, he, Samir Singh, he's an early stage investor focused on network effects, uh, creator of breadcrumb.vc and applied network effects, one of the highest rated courses on Maven. Both are globally renowned resources to learn about network effects. He's also now a venture partner at Speed Invest. Congrats, Samir, and part of the Atomico Angel program, where he invests in early stage startups with network effects. Samir has 14 years of experience in the technology ecosystem, distributed between technology startups and investing. For much of his time, he studied technology business models and network effects in a professional capacity and via independent projects. So I'm excited to chat. How are you doing today, Samir? I'm doing good. Thank you for inviting me, guys. And I've actually used the the phrase network effects guy before uh, as the intro. It's a nice shortcut. As I've mentioned before, and people might guess from my other uh, business's name, the rideshare guy, I'm a big fan of just sticking whatever you like or whatever you're good at or whatever you're known for in between the blank guy, the blank girl. It just has a good ring. So um, just good good bit of a branding advice there to start. <laughs> I, I thought good you were advice. Yeah, I thought you were franchising this kind of thing now. Is that? I, I wish I could find a way to make money off of this branding advice, but for now, I'm just giving it out for free. And I guess I'm gonna I'm gonna go off script for a second here and just ask you to start with uh, what are network effects, Samir? Uh, the basic definition, uh, the the textbook definition is that adding a user makes the product more valuable for all users. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more practical definition is that. Uh, the core value proposition of your product is an interaction that's created between multiple users of the product. So if it is a multiplayer interaction, which is the product, then you have a basis for network effect. Otherwise, you don't. You don't. Got it. And what would be sort of the classic or one of your favorite examples of a network effect startup or industry? I mean, the, the most basic one is social networks, right? They're, they're from mm-hmm. uh, the very genesis is a network effect. You allow users to interact with each other. Facebook was built on an interaction between college students before they sort of layered multiple interactions on. But I broadly put them into four categories. Data network effects, what I call interaction networks, of which mm-hmm. social networks are a part, marketplaces and platforms, which are far more developers sitting on top of a product, creating apps for those users. Got it. Cool. Um, Colin, right. you want to ask some uh, get to know uh, some of your questions? Yeah, I'd love to. And I, I want to dig more into the network effects in a, in a minute. How, how, how you how you know what they are, you know, when you're looking at such early stage companies. But um, so first off, how many angel investments have you made? It sounds like you've done some prior and some with the Atomic Angels program. So maybe give us a little sense what the about that and what that is. In total, about, I'd say 15, uh, 10 under the angel program and about five uh, before that when I was experimenting and doubling. All right. And then how many angel investments have you made this year? Do you plan to make? Uh, this year I've wrapped up, I've completed an angel investment that I committed last year. I completed two, in fact. Uh, I haven't committed any new ones this year yet. Uh, a lot of founders, I think, were hesitant to, to go out and fundraise Q1 of this year, seeing a bit more activity pick up uh, in April. So I'm hoping I'll end the year with at least four. Got it. And what's your average check size? As an angel, it's about uh, 30K GBP. All right. So pounds. Um, yeah. I don't know that translation exactly. but uh, 30, 35 
40k i guess usd okay got it we're looking at 1.24 us dollars right now to pound so doing all right and is that mostly uh uk startups european what's your uh it's pan europe it's pan europe uh just in terms of deal flow, I tend to get a lot from the UK and for some reason the Nordics. And there's like a smattering of German and, and French startups. Uh, but yeah, I, I, just in terms of thesis, I'm pretty agnostic as to where they're from within Europe. Where are you based, Samir? Uh, in London. Cool. And and in terms of what you look for uh, and what stage, would it tell us about that? Well, stage theoretically is pre-seed and seed, but I mean the, that tends to blend into uh, into each other. In terms of what I look for, my first test is: is this startup creating a unique interaction? In this, in the sense that the way users interact on this product was not possible before or could not be done before, because every network effect is built on an interaction. If it's not unique, you're probably running into somebody else's network effect, and so uh, that leads to some issues. So if you want to create a new network effect, you need a new unique interaction. Uh, the second part is, does that interaction then create have the potential for strong network effects, which is where my frameworks come in? Um, and then do the early metrics suggest that the interaction is working? That doesn't mean top-line growth. That means engagement and retention. And on the founder side, I, I prefer missionary over mercenary founders and what that means is the founder needs to have some sort of relationship with the problem he's solving. He's come across it in his personal and professional life. And so the problem means something to him beyond just, I want to build a company. Uh, because in those, in a, building a network is, is hard. And so if you don't really have a relationship with the problem, founders tend to pivot too early uh, or you know just continue to make pivots and sort of throw more stuff on the wall to see what works. And there's no real drive to get them to figure out how to make this interaction work. Got it. I like that saying, missionaries, uh, not mercenaries. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about your journey, uh, kind of how you got started in angel investing. And then I'd love to know, you know, kind of going towards today, we can talk about Atomico and uh, your role as a venture partner. But uh, how did you get into angel investing and, you know, why'd you start? A uh, long accidental journey. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I originally sort of stumbled into the startup world because I was working with a family office in India about 10 years ago. And one of the sons of that family um, had built a keyboard app, uh, which mm -hmm. was sort of moderately successful. And he had this idea to build India's rocket internet to incubate companies. Turned out incubating companies was hard. So we started investing in, in startups instead. Um, learned a lot through that. And this is around the time when iOS and Android were, you know, coming up, smartphones were starting to become a thing. What year was this? I, 2012 okay. in India. So, you know, three, four years after the iPhone was launched. Um, so I started writing a blog about how mobile businesses actually worked, how these platforms actually worked. Uh, that blog got a bit uh, more attention than, than I thought it would. And mm. I ended up joining a startup called AppMe uh, in London. Uh, why London was sort of a long story. I didn't want to move to China and the US visa system was not very friendly to people like me. Uh, so it. Europe was was, uh, uh, was sort of a nice middle ground. Um, AppAni was a company, it was a startup that uh, essentially allowed you to track market data for uh, pretty much any app in the world. Right? How many yeah. active users does Uber have versus Lyft or whatever. And at one point, pretty much every consumer-facing company in the world was using uh, AppAni data. Since then, the industry has gotten much more competitive. Mm -hmm. um, for the last many years, I was their head of consulting, which basically meant 
a lot of apani customers didn't actually know what to do with the data so my mm. team would go in and say hey based on what your problems are and what we see in the data you yeah. should build these features not those not those features and you should expand into those markets and not those markets so it was kind of like an outsourced product gtm kind of mm-hmm. thing um turns out lots of apani customers either had network effects or competing against them uh and i network effects are one of those topics that i was touching on um when i was writing my previous blog so i got deeper and deeper into it eventually uh once i got my visa taken care of left apani i wanted to move back into venture into investing into some way shape or form i kind of liked that from my past job i also knew i wanted to focus on network effects didn't know too many people outside of uh uh the head of research at atomico because he used to read my blog and he was a customer mm-hmm. uh, at apani so that was one connection so started writing essays about network effects and in the meantime just started dabbling with making a couple of angel investments i didn't have much capital uh, yeah. to deploy so these were very very small checks um that blog took on a life of its own which was breadcrumb.vc at one point atomico reached out and said hey you we kind of discuss your essays in our weekly team meetings do you want to come <laughs> present some of this somewhere to us so i had an hour and a half presentation with atomico and uh through the hour and a half of the entire firm nobody left yeah. uh, so that was a point uh and then after they said hey do you want some money which was helpful because at this point i was getting a lot of deal flow from founders reading my essays yeah i basically accidentally written an investment thesis uh, over a year uh what i didn't have was capital and so atomico mm-hmm. took care of that and mm-hmm. so starting in 2021 i started uh angel investing almost full time uh investing exclusively into companies with network effects and then uh there's not too many people who focus on what i focus on and so organically came came across the speed invest team as well and gradually collaborated on deals and ended up as a venture partner here very cool uh, i sort of like how you kind of built your brand as the network effects and you know c- kind of guy right as we talked about and then re- you know really you ran into this sort of typical problem that i think i have run into and i think a lot of others like a hey, angel investing is a lot of fun you get a lot out of it but boy you really need to make a lot of money to be able to do it for <laughs> years on end and you know 7 to 10 years to not see a return so it's kind of cool can you talk a little bit about how the atomico angel program i guess uh, works Sure. Yeah. I mean, you're right. Angel investing can become a very expensive hobby, uh, mm-hmm. and so it's it's best to not treat it like an expensive hobby. The yeah. uh, the angel program, uh, in many ways, it runs like a very very small single LP fund. Right. Mm-hmm. The first year they give you a hundred k. There's some ground rules on how you deploy it. Uh, I think the company needs to be based in Europe, mm-hmm. uh, or the founders need to have a key tie to Europe. Uh, you can't invest in gambling drugs or porn which i think is pretty standard across most funds and uh, the check sizes range can range from 10k to 50k usd uh, outside of that it's up to you uh, cool. what you you what you're comfortable with what you want to invest in and atomico takes care of the uh, the paperwork and the back office we just need to write up an investment memo and then submit it along with sort of a certain list uh, of documents so it's pretty uh, low touch it gives you a lot of freedom and it gives you capital to actually deploy and Uh, a lot of folks also then graduate to what atomico calls the alumni program where folks that are that are active in the ecosystem get a bit more capital to either do more checks or do larger checks uh, uh in the following following year so in my case i've got sort of a total of half a million of which half of it have already deployed um i target like four to six checks a year via that uh, via the program 
And in fact, even with speed invest four to six is pretty much the ceiling of what I would do. Um, like when you have those many con- constraints on what you what you invest, like you we want to do yeah more focused uh more focused bets. Got it. And that and that's does Atomica only do Europe? Atomic, I think, primarily does Europe. Uh, I think because, like, I, I don't know uh, exactly how it works, but I think a lot of European funds have it where if you have certain um, government investors investing into your fund, they mandate that a certain percentage of your uh, fund needs to be invested into European startups. Got it. So let's talk, I, I mentioned before, I wanted to get into the network effects part, kind of like your bread and butter. Um, sounds like, you know, obviously you become the guy, the resident expert. Uh, but when you're investing in like pre-seed and seed stage, you know, there's not a lot of data uh, most of the time, right? There's a lot of hopes and dreams and hopefully some traction. Um, how do you, you know, decide that there's a network effect um, such that you would want to invest? Like, you know, how, how and how can founders identify that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a two-step process uh, for this. Step one is most network effects are going to be built around the interaction, and the properties of that interaction really define what the strengths and weaknesses of that network effect are. So really what I'm doing in the, in the first meeting with the founder is try and understand what this interaction, how exactly it works. And in fact, uh, related to this, I'm launching a template next week where founders, as opposed to you know, 10,000 words of essays, can essentially just answer a quick one-minute quiz, and it'll give them a quick, uh, high-level assessment of, hey, your network effects are not particularly defensible, but they're fairly <laughs> scalable in this case, or you might have a viability issue, stuff like that. Which it's cool. Uh, that's my primary lens of looking at uh, uh, at network effects. In my case, I also only invest post metrics, so I tend to not invest at idea stage. I want to see early users using the product. I don't necessarily care about you know, how fast they're growing. So for a social network, I've, I've invested when they've got you know five thousand monthly active users. At that point, you have enough data to make sense of it. For marketplaces, you know, if you, if you have more than a hundred transactions a month, uh, for B two C marketplace, there's enough data to make sense. Of it. And so there's certain metrics I'm looking at, um, and the basic rule when evaluating the the metrics of a network effect product at an early stage is activity needs to outpace adoption. Uh, because the idea of a network effect is you add more users the value of the product improves. If the value of the product is improving, then users need to behave in that way as well. They need, need to be using it more or need to be converting at a higher higher rate. So as a basic example, let's say you were evaluating a social network, right? Most social networks are you know, one-sided. Uh, essentially, it's a user posting, another user looking at that post. So the number of posts per user per week or per day, depending on kind of what the ideal frequency for the network is, should be going up over time. Uh, that gives you an indication that the network is starting to work at least within the early user base. So number of posts per user and the number of views per user or you know, likes or comments per user, anything, anything that denotes an interaction, the number of interactions per user need to be going up over time. Similarly, for a marketplace, it would be, for a high-frequency marketplace, it would be number of transactions per user. And again, these are, these are things that will not go up forever. They're going to follow an S-curve. Mm-hmm. And by the time they get to the top of the S-curve, the retention should look great. But the mistake people make is you try to look at retention when you're at the bottom of the S-curve. Like at that point, the retention is not going to be great. That's the point. Uh, because the product is starting to um, get more and more valuable at that stage. Um, for a low-frequency marketplace, it could be something like a search-to-fill ratio. You know, the percentage of users that go in and search for something and then end up making a transaction, end up buying something. Uh, because the more supply you have, the more valuable the marketplace is. And therefore, 
uh, users should be more willing to buy in that case. And so the search to fill shows you that. And on from the utilization rate, what percentage of listings are getting sold? Uh, that also should be going up again, follows the same S curve. And so that's those are really the kind of signals I'm looking for. Depending on the kind of product, there's nuance in which metrics you would look at, which metrics you wouldn't. Uh, when you would look at retention, when you would not look at retention, how you measure retention. Like I'm, I'm a big believer in not measuring plain vanilla retention for for uh, networks. It's not just a user opening the app that makes a difference to the network. It's a user actively doing something that adds value to another user. And so that's mm -hmm. what I call retention to core action. Let's say a user mm -hmm. posting something, coming back the following week, posting again. What's that retention look like? Uh, and again, you need to kind of see that in combination with interactions per user and how that's evolved. And in terms of like just overall, I know you look for network effects, but do you find that like there is sufficient to have a good business just to have network effects? I mean, the the core part of it is that you need to be solving a real problem. Uh, that's step one, right? So the interaction that you've created should be unique and solving a, a real problem. If you're kind of selling ice to folks living in Nordics, probably not a great, not a, not a great business idea, right? Uh, so that's, that's almost like the initial filter. Like when you're evaluating the interaction, is it solving a problem or not? Uh, if it is solving a real problem and you can see the problem scaling and that a lot of people have a problem like this and the network effects are strong, and the metrics look right, and the founders of the missionary are probably uh, you know, seeing something close to a home run. Uh, again, it's not guaranteed because founder evaluations are not exact science. Uh, a lot of things can and do go wrong, uh, but essentially you're maximizing the odds of finding uh, a unicorn. And, and this is where my opinion gets a bit controversial in that I, market sizing is not a thing for me. Um, I tend to think of it as astrology for VCs because it's not that market size is not important. It's your, your ability to estimate the market size is not important. Uh, most people, you know, if you were evaluating the market size of Airbnb or Snapchat at Seed, you have to both be accurate and be have your colleagues not think you're completely, utterly insane. Uh, and those two, it's really hard to square those two circles. Uh, like you can be accurate but then you need to be you need to take a massive leap of faith which no one else uh no other investors that you're investing with are going to buy um or you need to say okay i'm going to estimate something that i think people will buy but then you're not necessarily in the realm of accuracy um and so that's it's almost like an exercise in failure like the, there's there's no way you're going unless this is a product being established uh, be, being created in a very very established market in which case it's probably not a very interesting product especially mm -hmm. for a consumer marketplace or network, you're not going to come up with a good answer. It's, it's almost a great way of filtering out unicorns at seed and or seed. Like if you had yeah. to create a mechanism to filter out potential unicorns, that's what you would do. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some interesting network effect businesses. Uh, what's one recent one that you've invested in or sort of looked at carefully on the startup side? My most recent investment is a company called Home Cooks, mm -hmm. which is a marketplace uh, to buy home cooked food from professional chefs or amateur chefs cooking cooking at home. Uh, and the, the key part of the marketplace is that it is not local. These are not chefs that are around you. These mm -hmm. are chefs spread across the country. Uh, and when the moment you do that, the amount of selection you have just completely explodes. So you have pretty widely differentiated supply. Um, and the food is healthier and cheaper than takeaway. And, and you have a better selection. And so that's a really interesting one where it's both 
theoretically cross-border to some extent. Supply is fairly differentiated, uh, mm-hmm. which they unlock through sort of their logistics model because the food is, they, they operate on sort of a consignment model, like real, real. Uh, chefs cook in batches and deliver it to uh, to home cook's warehouse where it's frozen. Mm-hmm. And they take it out of the freezer and time it such that when it gets to a user, it's chilled. And then they can, mm-hmm. they can pop it straight in the fridge and then you microwave it for four minutes and eat it. Uh, so that's a, a really, really interesting business. Interesting. Is that uh, operating in and, uh, in which which country? Uh, that's in the UK, right? So you okay. might see some parallels in the US with Cook Unity. Yeah, yeah. I think there. It's an interesting space. There's Chef um, and yeah. uh, Cook Unity, and I think uh, yeah. a few others. But uh, I, what, so, what was one thing that really stood out to you with Home Cooks, for example? That was there one thing that kind of made you invest, or was it a sort of series of checking the boxes of what you look for and kind of mentioned earlier and looking for startups? Uh, it's more if there was one thing, it was the fact that this was a unique interaction that was uh, solving a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, Getting access to to easy healthy healthy meal is kind of hard. Like what you get on Deliveroo or Uber is Uber Eats isn't necessarily very healthy. Uh, yeah. You have recipe boxes, which are a massive pain in the ass uh, because you effectively <laughs> need to cook those. So I've I've, I've never <laughs> yeah. seen like the churn rate for those businesses is surprisingly high, and so there was definitely room for something that was high quality, uh, cost effective, had like a, a wide selection, something that you wouldn't get anywhere else. Yeah. I think this essentially created a proposition to uh, to address that need. And of course, the the metrics, there's things in the metrics I saw that were that I thought were compelling to me. Got it. So, just, like one question I have, is, you know, I think you told us what network effects are, but um, I think maybe just as like a basic question for most people, like why are they important? Like what like what do you get from them? Like I mean, I, like I get that they make the product more valuable. But if I was to, as a founder or, you know, an angel thinking about a business, why are these more important than other things, I guess? Right. So there's, there's sort of a couple, there's a series of, of reasons and you kind of, I, I kind of follow them chronologically. One is that they enhance your ability to scale because if the product is getting more valuable over time, over time, assuming these are the right kind of network effects, your LTV is going up, your CAC is probably going to go down. And so your unit economics are going to like massively scale is the right kind of network effect. Second, it gives you a very, very strong moat. And again, assuming these are the right kind of network effects, all network effects are not the same. Um, if you have both high scalability and high defensibility, that's a recipe for a great business. And they're sort of well known as uh, the strongest form of defensibility you can have for a tech business. And uh, the good folks at NFX did some research there for us. They said that from what they saw, of all businesses that reached a billion dollars in value since 94, 35% of them had network effects. It seems like a lot, but those companies accounted for 70% of the total value created. So just in Hmm. terms of the amount of value creation that's happened over the last 25, 30 years, network effects have sort of been at the heart of them. Uh, And so even if you were someone who liked a pattern match, network effects are a pretty good pattern to match. Yeah, so if I repeat it back to you, network effects lead to a defensibility, right? Which ultimately is something that if you want to make a sustainable long-run business, you need to have defensibilities, right? To keep scaling. Um, and that yeah. the- uh, well, Defensibility the- and, and scalability. So yeah. you, in terms of your ability to scale efficiently, network effects will give you that. Because it just lowers the marginal cost of acquiring a user, 
essentially. Yeah. Got it. Very cool. So, uh, Samir, before we get to our uh, trending Twitter threads, there's one last thing I wanted to ask you about. I think I was in reading up on you and your bio. I saw that uh, I think you mentioned you're fairly hands on with a lot of the companies you worked on, you work or invest in. So I would love to know uh, more about like kind of specifically, you know, sort of what you offer to startups in that way when you're negotiating with them. And then kind of if you want to share some more tactical examples of kind of how you've come in and uh, helped. Sure. Um, so I, every founder I invest in, I give them the option of a one hour monthly call mm -hmm. where we go over product metrics and GTM. Effectively, anything network effects touch is where I can be helpful. Metrics tend to be the heart of that because they flow into both your product roadmap and your GTM roadmap. So the first call mm -hmm. always is, all right, what, is the, what are the important things we need to measure yeah. to ensure that we're on the right track? And then we essentially look at those metrics and the product and the GTM and an iterative if, if something is wrong and it's an early stage startup, something will always be wrong. Uh, as long as it's not fundamentally broken, uh, yeah. we, we can correct that. So one of the examples is my very first investment under the angel program, it's, uh, a company called How About, which I think is easiest to describe it as a social calendar. Um, so when I invested in them, so they were they had some clearly strong signs in the metrics and they had some things that were that were broken. One of the things that were broken is only about 15% of users who signed up actually used it as a social product. Most people were using it as a uh, as a calendar, single player calendar. And so the retention wasn't phenomenal at, at, at that stage. Uh, and surprisingly, that's actually pretty easy to fix. All you had to do was uh, one, call out most strongly that this is a social product in your onboarding mm -hmm. screens, in your app store page, uh, and add more friend invite buttons uh, in the app. That took it from 15% to 85% over six months. Oh. Uh, and pretty much every other metric started spiking right after that. They've grown 40x over the last couple of years, and that was sort of simple hacks that yeah. uh, that you can you can watch out for. Simple things you can watch out for in the metrics to figure out how to improve this thing. Very cool. Um, so, Colin, anything else you want to ask Samir before we go on to our trending Twitter threads? Yeah, I think one you know one thing I always like to ask um, is. You know, if you could go back and do it again, you know, all of your angel investing and everything you know today, um, what advice would you give people or what would you do differently than you did? Oh, good question. Um, my journey was more accidental than deliberate. <laughs> uh, so I, I would actually say be more deliberate in, uh, in, in, Focusing on one specific niche and creating a brand for yourself. It's like early on in my uh, in my investment journey, I did come across shadier characters in the investment world, the underbelly of the UK uh, <laughs> the UK tech scene, uh, and you only, only after interacting with with people like those do you realize okay you need to stay away from that and like that that is not uh, that is not okay. Um, so one is staying away from that, starting with building the brand, starting with adding value as opposed to starting with looking for a job or looking for ways to, to angel invest. Uh, I think that would be my biggest takeaway. When you create a brand, that then takes care of everything else. Because when you create a brand around a specific niche topic, people reach out to you to ask about that or get help from that. So you build your network that way. Uh, you also build deal flow that way, where founders are reaching out to you uh to, to ask you to invest or investors are reaching out to you to ask for your take on a particular deal uh that they're looking at and so it almost flows into everything it's almost at the heart of 
everything you would do as an angel investor or uh, uh, or a VC. You could also kind of there's some people that go at it the other way, which is also viable, right? So if you're a super connector, you're probably going to go and meet a lot of people and uh, and sort of ha bootstrap your way um, using your position as a super connector. So it's really about figuring out who you are, uh, what your strengths are, and whether they fit more in the super connector uh, persona, or is it someone who builds a brand for themselves or has like a specific niche uh, they like to focus on? Yeah, I really like the sort of brand idea, sort of obviously with breadcrumb.vc, I think you branded yourself really well there. And of course, all of your experience, I think Colin has done a good job on the marketplace side. You know, a lot of people know of him as the marketplace guy, which I think he should brand. Um, how? And then I guess the other option is super connector, right? You sort of just know everyone, you get out there. Do you think there's other ways? Like, I guess like I'm thinking about myself, like I kind of don't really have a brand when in stuff that I'm angel investing in. I, I know a lot of people, I'm like a little all over the place in angel investing. So I'm wondering now for myself, like, do you kind of, can you, can you make it work if you're not, if you don't have a big brand in angel investing or aren't a super connector or are those the kind of the only two, you know, best outcome paths you see? It's a good question. Um, I, there's probably a spectrum between both, Yeah. between being a super connector and between having a brand as the less you are of one, the more you need of the other. Yeah. But at least anecdotally, and like I, I, I don't have a hard answer. Anecdotally, I would say that the two extremes are probably the most effective ones. Yeah. So if you look at uh, folks who have like a certain stature or are pretty successful at this, they tend to fall into one of those two, uh, two buckets. But again, small yeah. sample size, so it's hard to I, say. Yeah. I, I like that. I think you're definitely on to something. So that's something we'll uh, keep, continue to explore in the future. So uh, speaking of building a brand, we've got a couple Twitter threads here. And I think this first one you might like. It's a We thought it was a bit random, but now uh, based, based off our discussion, I think it's uh, quite relevant. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, put it on the screen right now. And Colin, if you want to read it off, I'll uh, give you the mic. All right. And Samir, we just want hot takes. You know, don't worry about <laughs> offending anyone. I think Samir has had some good hot takes. Right? What, what it, yeah, uh, the underbelly of London, yeah. I think, was one. Uh, well, I was like, I, man, we, we should have a couple others about, that I wrote down. So we should have asked about the CD underbelly of um, UK <laughs> investing first, because that that sounds like the the episode right there. Yeah. Um, episode. <laughs> all right. So this one's from Dolma. Um, do celebrities on the cap table really do anything? Does it? materially boost distribution the way people claim um so samir what do you think you got any thoughts here it's it, it's interesting i i i can see it going both ways i'm not sure it's a it's a very hot take i've seen certain cases where celebrities when they have an actual interest in a particular business when they can move the needle uh, on it and i've seen um a couple of funds actually being spun out of this creator ventures here in the uk where one of the partners is essentially a YouTube influencer, so essentially a, yeah. a celebrity. And he helps with distribution. He helps with connections. Uh, but there's cases where, you know, there's lots of celebrity investors that get access to lots of deals. And so put a little bit of money everywhere. I mean, in that case, it's pretty much just sort of a vanity name on the cap table. It's you, you've got a name and you haven't got much else. If you have direct involvement, if you've got some sort of... Um, if they have some sort of meaningful skin in the game beyond just like a little bit of their cash, uh, then it can help. 
Yeah, I, I think the the reason why I like this uh, tweet from Dolma is, uh, you know, obviously there are a lot of celebrities that are kind of getting into VC, and you know, I feel like quite a few of the startups that I've talking to, oh, we're pitching the Chain Smokers Fund, or you know, oh, we've got this person, or even some of the sort of business people who have become kind of mini celebrities in a way, and there's this kind of merging of influencers and media and VCs, and obviously, you know, every VC wants to be influencer and media and vice versa. So I think uh, I, I like this reply here. Uh, from Ronak that I'll put on the screen. And uh, Ronak says 99.99% of the time, it's not going to work out like the founder thinks it will. Every founder should know this. Celebs should rarely be used at the, as the primary go-to-market. And by the time they want to get involved, the company already works. Dolma says that's exactly what I've observed helpful to corroborate. So, uh, you know, interesting. Yeah. And there's certain case, there's a lot of cases where it doesn't work. If, they, if celebrities are acting like a VC, uh, without sort of any structure in place to actually help the portfolio, it's it's yeah. not really going to work. It's only in cases where they actually have that structure and all have a specific interest in uh, in one particular startup, that's when it can help. Yeah. And again, this I... is sort of scaling a startup that already works as opposed to making a startup work. Well, ran kind of a, a random question, but have you seen any instances where a celebrity is not so much about distribution, but having them as part of the network increases the value of the network? depends on the on the product right um if you have a network where that celebrity is actually a key cog or a key node on the network then sure i could see it i could see that working you know examples would be something like a uh, clubhouse right yeah. uh so essentially yeah uh twitter uh there's there's one that i recently did called intro or intro or intros it's like a uh, a marketplace for booking a 30-minute call with yeah. someone who's high profile, right? So in that case, celebrity investor essentially means they're going to be on the product. I mean, yeah, that helps. Cameo, like that would be yeah. a perfect example of where a celebrity being using the product massively moves the needle for it. Yeah, very hmm. cool. Uh, so the last thread that we have, which I'll put on the screen right now, is from Francis, uh, Francis Santora. And we just saw this one. To be honest, uh, my most successful investments, I helped the least. They just didn't need it. So a uh, little different than, um, you know, I think other investors who are kind of getting in there and getting their hands dirty. So what do you think, Samir? Uh, I'll put it this way. Most investors are generalists and can't really help much anyway. And mm -hmm. so if they're helping, odds are that's not a great investment. Whereas <laughs> 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 uh, uh. folks that have like a specific area they can help startups with. Yeah, like in fact, the best founders probably have a way of seeking out those people, seeking out the right advice. Yeah. And so like, uh, uh, you hear, there's certain kinds of tweets and advice that you know is coming from a generalist investor. Mm, interesting. Well, I guess this guy too, he might be, uh... Um, I don't, yeah, I mean, maybe he is a generalist too, but I, I've heard this from a couple angels that, you know, so one of the things that they like is, you know, giving them 25 K and then, you know, wiping their hands. And it's like, wow, if they bug me a lot, it's like, this is not a good sign. Right. Uh, what did, what did Kirk say on one of our earlier episodes, Colin, right. That if you get too many up, uh, investor updates are not enough, you know, it's kind of a bad thing too. Right. Well, you know, Samir, you said something interesting where you said you offer a one hour call every month to your companies. Have you found that the people that don't take that do better? Yeah. Do they do worse? Nope. No, uh, no correlation at all. So my top two portfolio companies, one I speak to every week, one I never speak to. I get uh, a portfolio update from them and I send them a WhatsApp message saying, hey, great, great month. Yeah. That's about it. So 
Nobody Both kind of feel good, it's, don't they, Samir? Like, you know, the yeah. ones that you're helping, you're like, wow, I'm doing a lot and they're doing well. And the others is like, I don't even have to do anything. And these guys are doing great. <laughs> I feel like both are kind of fun. <laughs> it's win-win. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very huh. cool. Very cool. Well, uh, Samir, we really appreciate you coming on and we're going to leave links in the show notes to everything that you've got going on your blog, breadcrumb.vc, uh, uh, Atomico Angels, and also um, the uh, venture partner role. What was the firm again? It was Speed, uh, Speed Invest. Speed Invest. Speed Invest. Cool. Um, is there any other, uh, if folks want to get a hold of you or follow what you're doing, is there anything else they should follow you on Twitter, maybe? I mean, Twitter and LinkedIn work. Uh, you can also look me up on Maven. I run a course called Applied Network Effects there once every three or three to four months. Uh, so about three times a year. So if you want to get really deep into network effects, typically it's a group of founders, investors, oh, cool. and, and operators who are coming come there to learn. Mm, I like that. Any parting words that you want to leave our audience with? I can't think of one right now. I can't Speechless. think of any right now. <laughs> All right. Well, we definitely. Thank you guys. Thank you guys for inviting me. Yeah. I learned a lot, had a lot of fun. Thank you, Samir.